Our scripture reading comes from Judges chapter 6 this evening. If you'll find that in your Bible, and when you do, please rise for the reverent hearing of God's holy word. We're going to be reading the first 27 verses this night. Actually, the first 24 verses. There we read, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of the Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of the Midians, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains, and the caves, and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would camp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tent and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the God of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat underneath the terebinth tree at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Azburite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us. It's given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of the Midians. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house, prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terabith tree and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meats and the unleavened cakes, put them on this rock, pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hands, touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, and the fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, alas, O Lord God, For now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is peace. 
to this day stands at Aphra, which belongs to Asbarites. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. The 20th century book and movie, The Wizard of Oz, we read and see a young lady, Dorothy, and her dog, Toto, that are joined with other misfits on their journey to the Emerald City to meet the Wizard of Oz. And as you remember, they are all in search of something. Dorothy is trying to get back home. The Scarecrow is looking for a brain, Tin Man a heart, and the Lion courage. And in the end, they realize that these things do not come from a magical wizard, but they are already things that they think that they lack, but in reality, they have. As we come to the story of Gideon in the book of Judges this night, we find something similar. Gideon lacks a home. At least the home that he has is not much of a home at all. It's ransacked by the Midianites on a continual basis. Likewise, we would say that Gideon lacks a brain in the sense that he does not think God's thoughts after him. He does not have a heart that is devoted exclusively to the Lord, and he lacks courage to move forward. Indeed, he questions God, he doubts God's provision, and he lacks strength and the courage and the fortitude to go forward. You may even wonder as you read this story, is this truly a judge of Israel? Surely the Lord has the wrong person. He has chosen the wrong man for the job. And yet, we know that this is the one that the Lord has chosen as the instrument of his salvation for his people Israel, despite his mixture of both fear and faith. And what we discover is that Gideon finds out that all that he needs, in fact, all that he lacks, he already has. Not that he finds it in himself, like you would hear in the Wizard of Oz. It's not inside of him, but rather outside of him. It's found in God alone. And isn't that true of us as well, that we live our lives in so much fear, forgetting who we are and, more importantly, whose we are, that all that we stand in need of, the Lord has already provided he is with us, and we need not fear. And so what we see in Gideon is a broken hero, one in which we can relate, for in him we find a reflection of ourselves, and even more, a longing for a perfect judge and ruler of Israel, indeed, a ruler of the world itself, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we'll see I begin this study of Gideon over the next two weeks tonight with two points, the crisis of Gideon and then the call of Gideon. First, the crisis of Gideon. By now, you know the cycle of sin that has taken place in the book of Judges, that the people sin and they experience the misery of their sin, and so then they cry out to God for help. God raises up a judge, and through that judge, they are able to break free and have salvation and thus peace. 
at least for a time. And then the cycle starts over again. We have already seen this again and again. We just heard of Barak and Deborah, how the Lord raised them up. And in chapter 5, they sing a song, a, a duet, we might even say, a song of salvation. And at the end of that chapter, chapter 5, we read, and the land had rest for 40 years. But as we begin chapter 6, we read these words, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sights of the Lord. The cycle indeed repeats itself once again. And you might wonder, when are these people going to learn? When are they going to recognize what is taking place to them? When are they not going to enter into sin and thus the misery of their sin and rather live in peace? But it demonstrates, doesn't it, that the curve, the arc of mankind is never towards godliness and holiness and righteousness, but away from it. The total depravity is indeed a doctrine that is proven empirically. We only need to look around. We only need to look at your own life to know that that is a true and right theological doctrine. And it is true of us and it is true of the Israelites as well. In the Psalms, Psalm 78, we have a recounting of Israel's history and we read these words, but they put God to the test and they rebelled against the Most High. They did not keep his statutes like the ancestors. They were disloyal and faithless, as unreliable as a faulty bow, as unreliable as a faulty or crooked or twisted bow. If any of you have bow hunted before, you know that a twisted or crooked bow will never shoot straight arrows. And yet that is the nature of mankind, isn't it? That we come from the womb twisted and crooked and sinful, and we see that throughout the book of Judges. Indeed, we see that throughout the pages of Scripture, and we see that even in our lives, in the life of our world as well as in our own And what takes place is a society that is not flourishing, but rather is in decay and indeed in decline. And the Lord hands over us to our sin and to our misery. Back in the days of teaching kids and specifically teaching within the church, the children's catechism, one of the questions that we teach our children is about Adam and Eve. And the question that is asked is, what befell our first parents when they had sinned? And the answer is, instead of being holy and happy, they became sinful and miserable. And when you teach with kids, you have to emphasize things. And so I would always try to teach them this way, that instead of being holy and happy, they became sinful and miserable. And you have to say it with that type of emphasis so that they will get it. But it's true, isn't it? All sin will make you miserable. And when we see miserable people in a miserable society, we know it's because they are experiencing the consequences of their sin. And that is exactly what we see in the time of Gideon. In chapter 6, we 
are given a good description of their misery. We read that the Israelites would plant crops and harvest them, and they would take care of their livestock, their sheep and their ox and their donkeys, only to have the Amalekites and the Midianites come in at harvest time and take it all. In fact, it says that they would come as many as locusts. That was their number, that they could not be counted. But that is an apt description of what they were. They were as many as locusts, and they acted like locusts, eating all of the harvest. And can you imagine how frustrating that must have been, laboring all year long, not to have any of the reward, any of the payoff of your labors because it is stolen from you. In our house, we have tried a garden a few times. It's never been very successful because of bugs and because of rodents and I believe even because of deer. They would always come and steal all the fruits and all the vegetables and it would be extremely frustrating because you would put all this time and effort and money and water and fertilizer only to not gain any of it. And this was taking place on a national level with Israel. In fact, it was so bad, it says that in verse 2, they made for themselves dens in the mountains and caves and strongholds. In other words, they were hiding away and no doubt hiding their food away in these caves and in these dens. This was not prosperous living. And in many ways, this was in contrast to what the Lord told them the land would behold them, that this promised land would be a land flowing with milk and honey, that this would be a prosperous land. And indeed, it was a prosperous land, but they were not enjoying any of the prosperity because of their sin. And so they cry out in verse 6. It says, And Israel was brought very low because of the Midians. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. It's interesting that the Lord heard their cry for help despite their sin. But he does not immediately send a deliverer. He does not immediately give them freedom or salvation from their misery. Rather, he sends a prophet with a message which does not seem like what they needed. It seems like what they would need would someone that could come and remedy their situation, not someone that would come and bring words to them. Perhaps the the tone of that day was, hey, we need a little less talk and a lot more action, God. As Dale Ralph Davis says, this is like instead of sending a mechanic to a stranded motorist, you send a philosopher. You don't need someone to philosophize why your car has broken down. You need someone to fix it. And no doubt that is what the Israelites thought. Lord, we don't need a message. We don't need your words. We don't need a prophet. We need someone that can come and fix our situation. Why send a preacher with a messenger rather than a rescuer with a sword? And yet, what we see and what we hear 
is that indeed Israel's greatest need, if they knew it or not, was a message, was a message from the Lord. And they needed this message because the people cried out about their circumstances instead of crying out for what led to their circumstances. That they were saddened by their misery, but they indeed were not saddened by their sins. We once had a friend who had to implement a little bit of discipline on his son. His son at this time was probably five or six, and I got to kind of overhear this conversation that was taking place after the discipline was administered. And the discipline naturally had led to some tears in this small boy's eyes. And again, this dad was trying to make sure that this son understood why he was being disciplined. And so he asked some questions. He asked this young boy, what did you learn? To which the son said, I learned that you made me cry. To which the father said, well, why are you crying? To which the son said, because you spanked me. Why did I spank you? Because you don't want me to be happy. (laughs) I just want to be happy. To which the father had to say, no, you're not happy because you did what was wrong. You have sinned. It's not the consequences of your sin that makes you unhappy. It is your sin itself. And that is a lesson not just for small boys and girls, is it? That is a lesson that we must learn as well. In fact, that is what we read in this passage, that the land was being laid to waste. Israel was brought very low, and the people cried out, and they were miserable. But did they ever stop and think, Why is this? What has led to these circumstances? What is the heart of the matter? And like I said, we need to apply this to ourselves as well, that when life gets difficult and sometimes we experience the misery of this life, be it in difficulties in your life or in your marriage or in your family or when work is not going as well as we would like it to, instead of bemoaning our circumstances Perhaps we should ask, why is this? What are you doing, Lord? What are you trying to teach me? Because perhaps the Lord is allowing this to be purposeful, to humble you, to even lay you low, to root out pride and self-confidence and self-reliance. And that is indeed exactly what the prophet told them, didn't he? He says in verse 8, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. Do you hear what the prophet is saying? Am I not strong enough to deliver you from the Midianites? Of course I am. The Midianites would be nothing compared to the Egyptians. The Midianites would be small and puny compared to the mighty deliverance of God bringing out this entire nation from the nation of Egypt. Indeed, the Midianites are as nothing before me. 
and yet they are wreaking this havoc. But it's not because of them or because of their strength. It is because of me. I am allowing this to take place so that you would wake up and realize your sin and your sinfulness. In fact, he ends with those very words, but you have not obeyed my voice. You have disobeyed. This really has nothing to do with the Midianites at all. It has everything to do with you and your lack of obedience. The Midianites are just my tools of discipline and of judgment upon you. Now, to our modern ears, this may seem harsh. This may seem like this is not a message of positivity, but rather this is a message of condemnation and even of judgment. But do we not realize that one of the greatest mercies and grace that the Lord can do to us and in our life is to point out our sinfulness? No, it is not fun. No, it is not enjoyable. But what is far worse is allowing it to remain and to do nothing. Perhaps you came tonight and maybe you're not familiar with our service and you thought this confession of sin, this seems negative. I don't know if I like this. I don't know if I enjoy doing this. But it is something that is most definitely needed because we need our sin to be shown so that it can be rooted out so that it can be done away with and and be put away. Indeed, nobody wants to hear that they have cancer. But you know what is worse than cancer? Undetected cancer. If it is undetected, you can do nothing about it, can you? It is killing you quietly. With a cancer diagnosis, at least there is hope that there might be a remedy, that you might be able to eradicate it. Indeed, the same is true of us. Indeed, one of the greatest forms of judgment is when God does not point out our sin and indeed gives over individuals and a society to their sinfulness. And yet one of the greatest mercies, as I said, is to call it out, to show it in our lives because there is an opportunity indeed for repentance and ultimately for eradication And through it, you have the hope of salvation. Does not the Lord do that for us week by week through the preaching of his word, that our hearts and our minds are laid bare before him, before his word and his message to us. And then the word brings comfort, the comfort of Christ, the comfort of the gospel, the the good news that there is a salvation for sinners, a salvation that is found in Christ alone. One of my mentors told me that the task of preachers is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. Indeed, that is true, isn't it? And we need both, and both are by God's grace. And when we are afflicted, when we are convicted, it is an opportunity to repent and believe and be healed, to leave on a different path, than from the one that you entered upon it. Israel was not in crisis because of the Midianites. They were in crisis because they were not applying God's word to their hearts and to their lives. And so second, we see that the Lord raises up a judge. We see the call of Gideon. 
We see in Gideon, indeed, a reluctant judge. He's a reluctant deliverer. The call of the Lord comes to Gideon in the midst of the oppression. You noticed that, didn't you? That this call comes to him while he's beating out the wheat. But he is not beating out the wheat on the threshing floor. No, he is beating out the wheats in a wine press because it says he was hiding from the Midianites. If you think you shouldn't be beating out wheat in the wine press, you would say, yeah, that's right, you shouldn't. It is not the proper place to do it. But indeed, this is where the call of Gideon comes in the midst of his struggle, in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of the oppression. Indeed, Gideon is a small symbol of what was taking place nationally. But we see something very ironic when this angel of the Lord appears to him. He says that the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Gideon being called a mighty man of valor would be like calling a short man Andre the Giant or a strong man Hulk Hogan. It seems inconsistent. In fact, it does not seem true at all. As we will see, Gideon does not seem like a man of valor at all. In fact, he lacks valor. He lacks strength. He he lacks courage. And yet, this is the word of the Lord to Gideon. And it demonstrates, I think, that the Lord does not call the equipped. No, he equips the called. And does not, we see that with who we are as well. That the Lord does not see us who we are, but who we will indeed be, ultimately, in Christ. But again, Gideon has a long, long way to go before he lives up to that word of being a man of valor. In fact, you demonstrate his lack of valor in his response. The angel of the Lord says to him, the Lord is with you. Now, I cannot prove it. But I believe that Gideon scoffed at that thought. He must have said, ha, if the Lord is with us, why are we experiencing all these problems? Is that not what he says in verse 13? Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us? saying, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? You hear what he is saying. The the Lord has done all of these wonderful things. We've heard all of the mighty works of God, and yet, where have they been in our day? Where are they now? It demonstrates that Gideon indeed had heard the word of the prophet mentioned earlier, but it did not sink home. In fact, you might even say that Gideon perhaps disagreed with the preacher. And Gideon is saying that our situation is not a problem with us. In fact, he lays the blame at the feet of God. Notice what he says. But now the Lord has forsaken us and has given us into the hands of Midian. Here is the call of Gideon. And what's Gideon's response? It's one of doubt. It's one of skepticism. And ultimately, one of accusation against God. 
And it demonstrates, I think, that the situation that was going on had not hit home specifically for Gideon. When the response is, you, 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 instead of me, 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 you realize that someone is not looking inward. They're only looking outward and ultimately not at the root of the problem, which is themselves. It seems like Gideon, in his hardness, had become a bit of a bitter man. No doubt you've seen this before in others, perhaps neighbors, coworkers, other family members. Their life has not turned out the way that they wanted. And instead of self-introspective, self-introspection, they have a bitter eye towards the world and everyone else. Everyone else is to blame for their circumstances, what has taken place. And indeed, they have become a miserable person. And that is indeed a miserable place to be. And Gideon was no doubt not far from that. Gideon was low, not just physically low in the wine press, but spiritually, I believe he was in a low place. And yet this is the one who the Lord calls. And yet, interestingly enough, the Lord does not reject him despite being bitter, despite being spiritually low. The Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. You hear the call of the Lord, go to Gideon. Again, go, I have sent you. And yet look at Gideon's response yet again. Verse 15, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. You got the wrong dude. You got the wrong man. I can't do this. I am from the least tribe, and I am of the least family, and I am of the least of the least family. I have no pedigree. I have no power. And look what the Lord says. He essentially says, you're perfect. You're perfect for the job. Verse 16, but I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. I know you have no power. You don't need any power. I am the one that is with you. Therefore, go. You will bring unity and you will overthrow your oppressors. You would think that message would be enough, but indeed, that was not enough. He rather says in verse 17, Gideon says, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. In other words, your word is not sufficient. I'm going to need a sign. You're going to have to provide me a sign. I, I need some proof that you are really from God. So have you caught this interaction? Gideon, the, the man of valor, the man that is told that the Lord is with you. His response is, yeah, right. If he is with me, then why the problems? I am sending you, Gideon. No, you have the wrong person. No, I am with you. No, you're going to have to prove it. You see skepticism. You see denial. You see doubts. And you would think the Lord's final word would say, Gideon, three strikes, you're out. I'm moving on. I'm going to find somebody else. I'm done with you. Indeed, we would have endured far less. 
And yet what we see, what we should be amazed at is the graciousness and the mercy and the long-suffering of our Lord amidst a, a fickle and faithless people, not altogether different than you and me. And if you think that this sounds awfully familiar, you are correct. Because the call of Gideon, in many ways, is almost identical to the call of Moses at the burning bush. And what did we see with Moses? We see the same doubt. We see the same disbelief that the Lord could use him and would use him. And what is interesting about that is Gideon would have known that story. That would have been a story that would have been very familiar amongst the Israelites. It would have been told to him from when he was a wee little lad. And yet, that story was not enough to convince Gideon that the Lord could use a a nobody, just like he had used Moses, who was a nobody, and became a somebody through the mighty power of God. So you would think that Gideon would have taken that message, that Sunday school message to heart, and said, yes, if the Lord can use Moses, he can use me. And yet, Gideon says, no, it's not enough. I need more. And so we see the test that is put before this angel of the Lord to see if he is really an angel of the Lord, to really see if this is a message from God, to really understand if this is a true call upon Gideon's life. And so Gideon says, wait here. I'm going to bring a present. And the angel of the Lord says, okay, I will wait until you return. Now, what is interesting about this is that we read that Gideon goes to prepare a young goat and some unleavened cakes, which would have taken several hours. Gideon could not just have gone down the road and picked up some drive through or gone to Publix. No, this would have taken a long time. And yet what we see is the angel of the Lord waits. And why does he wait? Because Gideon needs a sign. The patience of the Lord is truly astounding. Essentially, this angel of the Lord says, well, don't mind me, I'll just wait here long enough for you to believe that I'm a true messenger of God. And finally, when the meal is prepared, Gideon brings it out, and the angel of the Lord tells him to put it on the rock and to pour the broth over it, which seems a bit strange. But then this angel of the Lord reaches out the tip of his staff and fire comes up from the rock and consumes the food. And if you are thinking fire doesn't usually come out from rocks, you are correct. This indeed was a miracle. And in that moment, the angel of the Lord was gone. He vanished. He went up with the smoke of the food. And it's in that moment that Gideon realizes whose presence he was in. And we realize with him that this was more than just an angel of the Lord, that this indeed was the Lord himself. This is what we call a theophany or specifically a Christophany, an appearance of the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, the same one that's approached Jacob and wrestled 
with him, the same one who met Moses in the burning bush, the same one meets Gideon here. Later in the book of Judges, we will see that this angel of the Lord, we believe, is the Lord himself, goes to the parents of Samson. And we know this from the text itself. It's not just because I think it is, but because we see in verse 12 that when he first comes to him, he says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. But then in verse 14, we see, and the Lord, Yahweh, turned to him and said. So you notice that the angel of the Lord and the word Lord is used simultaneously. But even more than that, we read in verse uh, 16, it says, and the Lord said to him, but I will be with you. Do you hear what he first said? He first says that the Lord will be with you. And then he says, no, I will be with you. You see that these are one and the same. The Lord will be with you. I will be with you. This is the Lord himself. And then we know it even more specifically through this miracle. This is only a miracle that the Lord could perform. And Gideon in that moment realizes that his eyes, in a sense, were open. And if he was not converted before, we believe that he was converted in this very moment, in this very instant. He goes from skepticism and doubt and disbelief to faith and ultimately to fear, proper fear. In fact, he says in verse 22, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. He realizes he has met the Lord face to face. And Gideon knows that no one sees the face of the Lord and lives, especially no one that is so hard-hearted and blind like he has been. And Gideon in this moment realizes his sin and rightly fears. Again, this is something that is foreign to us as modern believers because we have lost a sense of the fear of the Lord. We might want to say to Gideon in that moment, Gideon, settle down a little bit. Do you not know that Jesus is our friend? And what I would say to you is, yes, Jesus is our friend, but he is also our Lord and ruler and judge of all. And we must not forget that. We should rightfully tremble and fear. Again, Dale Ralph Davis says, this sort of talk is strange to us because we have no real sense of the terror and awesomeness of God. For we think intimacy with God is an inalienable right rather than an indescribable gift. He goes on to say, there's nothing amazing about grace as long as there's nothing fearful about holiness. Let me read that again. There is nothing amazing about grace as long as there's nothing fearful about holiness. See, when we rightly see God, we should rightly fear God and have the fear of the Lord. And in that fear, we see and understand the mercy and grace of God all the more because we know that his holiness should consume us as sinners. And yet in his mercy, he forbears. And in his grace, he gives. And that is indeed what we see at the very end of this passage. We see that the word of the Lord comes to Gideon. And he says, peace be to you. 
do not fear. You shall not die. Can I say it this way? Here is a sinner, indeed even a punk in his sin, that deserve to die. And yet what we see is grace and peace being given to him. We would have given up a long time before God gives up on Gideon. But the Lord does not give up. And we might be able to say quite foolishly, I would think, that, well, if I saw the angel of the Lord, if I saw the Lord Jesus Christ, I would not doubt or disbelieve. Oh, dear Christian, do not be so ignorantly foolish. We have seen so much more than Gideon. He saw in a time that was dimly lit with just a fraction of the revelation that is given to us. We are in the full light, the full revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know the full story, the full testimony of God. We know and understand the true gospel of Christ. And yet we still doubt. And we disbelieve. And we sin. Every day. Of every single day. And yet the Lord, like with Gideon, does not cast us off. He indeed is gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness to us again and again and again. We are sinners that deserve judgment and condemnation, and he gives us grace upon grace to the least deserving. And he sends us out with a commission and a call to go into all the world to preach the good news of that same Lord Jesus Christ. As we finish up and we head to the table, do you not see a parallel here? That this pre-incarnate Christ goes to Gideon and gives him a message of peace. Likewise, that incarnate Christ, after his resurrection, after all his disciples had left him and forsaken him, and he died all by himself. They are there in an upper room with the door locked and hidden away, hidden from the rest of the world, and the Lord comes in their midst. And what is his message to them? It's a message of peace. Peace be with you. That same message is offered this day to sinners and to strugglers. You think that the Lord would come with condemnation and yet he comes with the message of peace and reconciliation. This table is a, a table of just that. It is a table of peace. It's a table of reconciliation between us and God, not because we deserve it. We do not deserve it. We deserve death. We deserve condemnation. We deserve wrath. And yet the Lord gives us grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy. And even more than that, he says, I am with you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'll be with you to the very end of the age. That is the message that we need to hear again and again and again. That is the message that changes everything. That the Lord indeed is for us in Christ and not against us. Amen.